Usually careers have chapters to them, and you can look back and sort of start to define those chapters. The unfortunate thing is you don't get to necessarily define them at the beginning of the book. You define it at the end of the book. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. I'm excited to share with the whole No Limits crew our very first episode of 2019 featuring Nancy Dubuque. She's the CEO of Vice Media, and she's one of the most influential women in the industry. Nancy describes her career as a constant zigging and zagging. In college, she thought she might be in advertising, but then she moved over to TV, news, and then producing before realizing her biggest talent was as a leader and finding her path to CEO. Nancy spent 20 years at A&E, five of those as CEO before joining Vice in the spring of 2017. I met her at the Vice offices in Brooklyn, where we talked about her career, the most pivotal moments. She also says there was a time when she really underestimated herself, and she shares how she figured that out and made a change. We also talk about her vision for Vice. It's not a company without a little controversy in its past, and we get into to that. And she talks about how she handles difficult decisions, the ones that she's had to make as the new CEO. Here's Nancy Dubuque. Nancy Dubuque, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. Thanks for having us to your offices inside of Vice. Thank you very much for coming over to Brooklyn. Uh, it's a, it's actually a really cool space that you have here. I've been looking around. Um, we were just talking about the fact you do have a fair amount of plants. I do. I do. I do. <laughs> do you water them? Um, no. Somebody comes and does that. Oh, which wow. I wish I had that at home. Yeah, that's fancy. But the thing that really caught my eye is the samurai sword. Is that a samurai sword? Um, it's not technically a samurai sword, but it's um, it's from the cast and uh, from Forged in Fire from history. So um, they gave that to me as a gift. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. And one of my favorites is the Ice Road Truckers. And on top, you can't see, but um, it was d- during a marketing stunt. And the top of it is all signed by all the NASCAR races. That is awesome. Yeah. And then you have the pillow. Not most people's pillows don't say I know. unfulfilled on unfulfilled. them. Unfulfilled. Most of them are like, there's super a good story behind that. Life is plentiful. <laughs> so, um, what's the story? I spent a long lunch several years ago with Mr. Bill Haber, who is one of the founders of CAA. And we were trying to find the descriptive word for what I was feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and we never came up with it. And about two weeks later, that pillow showed up in the mail. And he was like, I've discovered the word. And he wasn't all wrong. I feel I actually, I would say for me, my uh, word in that vein is always hungry. Yeah. Both or, real yeah. and, you know, both actually for food, but just for life, whatever I can get. Yeah. And we all know when there's a void, right? And it's always trying to put something in that void. And it's sometimes it's at home. Sometimes it's at work. Sometimes the play just to figure out what category it's in. So we have a lot to get to here talking about your move to Vice, which is relatively recent at this point still. Yeah, not quite six months, but about right about there. And I want to go back to you as a kid growing up, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. Were you thinking at the time, I want to be in journalism? Was that something that was part of the top of mind? No, (laughs) no, not at all. Um, I was thinking about you know, not wanting to come home after school and how could I get in trouble? And that that was my modus operandi in Rhode Island. Um, nope, it was never, 
you know, I, I got here by more process of elimination than I did vision for myself. What did you eliminate? You know, I think you, you start to realize what you're capable of or what you think you're capable of, you know, and maybe I probably have underestimated myself for a long time throughout my career and throughout my life. Um, but, you know, the first time you lay eyes on the, a legal book, you know, well, I knew I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to read that, those things for years upon years. Um, and, you know, you start to self-select a little bit, I think. And maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing for, for young women. But, you know, you make decisions about your capabilities around math and science or around, you know, your, your patience or what you think you're capable of. And, and by process of elimination, I started to sort of see that, you know, I had a huge appetite for entertainment, that I had an appetite to sort of be able to, you know, react quickly to things and ping and pong between things quickly. Um, you know, I always had some form, I think, of leadership skills in school and, and was a, you know, an athlete in college. So I had that competitive um, streak in me. And did you play? Um, I rode crew. So it, you know, it, it manifested itself in different ways throughout my life, that competitiveness. But, you know, through process of elimination and being a huge consumer of media and loving media and knowing that I had a fairly short attention span um, and, you know, really just was hungry to get to work, frankly. And, and graduate school was something that was never really on my mind and was never a path that I was considering. Media just felt like the right place. It, you know, I think it was a mutual gravitational pull towards each other. So you studied communications in college at I did. Boston University. I did. Yeah. And was it clear? But I made my way through, you know, liberal arts, school of management, and then communications. So it was a circuitous path to yes, communications. Yes, the beginning of my zigging and zagging. <laughs> and when you were in college, was it clear to you that you were going to go out and pursue producing types of jobs and journalism Oh, jobs? no, no. I thought I was going to be in advertising. I wanted to be in the ad agency world. And so that's really what I spent most of my time on at BU. I was the director of ad sales for the Daily Free Press, which is the third largest daily in Boston. Wow. It was at the time. Yeah. Um, we put that newspaper out Monday through Friday. Um, and so I, from there I got, you know, a, an interesting exposure looking back to, you know, the, the money dictates the editorial that the editor would have to come and ask me how many pages he had the next and day. And how did that sit with you? Because <laughs> it's funny you say that. So uh, my mom is a journalist, mm -hmm. and she tells me about this um, conversation she had when she was a young journalist with the publisher. And um, the publisher basically said something to her along the lines of, your articles are the glue that holds the ads together in my paper. <laughs> so how did that hit you? At that time. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you get to look back and, and understand the impact of things with much more magnitude than when you're living in it. Um, I think I knew then that my heart and and my 
my um, my drive was probably in creative because I always felt like I was sequestered in the front sales office and they got to have all the fun in the back writing, you know, writing the articles and doing the um, whether it was, you know, the basic, you know, who what Terrier team won or lost to the more complicated investigative pieces um, and that there was a bond amongst the creative teams that um you know, we just didn't experience in sales and sales. It was, you learned that you had to deliver. And, um, I learned hustle pretty quickly, you know, early on. I, I found my way into the daily free press by, um, convincing BU to let me use my work study program as a paid job at the daily free press. And so that's sort of how I got myself there. And I was able to spend all of my time there versus having to balance, you know, both work study, my time there and studies. Smart. You're a hustler. At the time You're resourceful. At the well, time. At, come yeah, on, Nancy. Yeah, yes. You're still a hustler. No, yeah. um, a little bit. You have to be. So how did you make the move from that job into and, and sort of that world into the more producing journalistic side of the business? You know, I it, it, I think it's, look, internships are critical. They're a critical um, jumping off point, I think, for any, you know, young student, regardless of the field. Um, obviously, some industries have very formal and very long internship programs, like the medical field, and some have, you know, less, form, less formal, but equally important in terms of just the contacts and the experience that they give you. And you know, mine were incredibly important. And um, the those two summers, and I spent a semester um, actually at my senior year at BU at NBC News. And sort of, you know, I started to gravitate away from the sales office and into the, the, the journalism side of the house. And, you know, if I hadn't had that experience and seeing what the community felt like at the Daily Free Press, I wouldn't have been drawn to that um, and as an internship. And so I had a choice actually at NBC to be, you know, one of eight interns at the Today Show or one of one at the in the communications office. And so while the communications office wasn't necessarily going to put me in the heart of journalism, I chose the one of one because I figured I would be one of one. Yes. <laughs> and and so I think I learned pretty early to not necessarily go with the headline or the title, but to go with the opportunity and to think through, you know, the things that might not be so obvious, like I was going to be their only intern in that department. And the communications department got to go to every show. I wasn't going to be assigned to just one show. So that there were maybe benefits that weren't so obvious. And then through that, um, you know, I actually found my way to the NBC office in Washington, D.C. and spent a semester there. So it all worked out, at least for that period. Well, and how did – so navigating some of those questions, especially early on in your career, mm -hmm. it can be really open-ended which direction you go. What was informing you at the yeah. time? Was it your parents? Was there something about your um, background that – gave you that notion about sort of statistical odds and go where the opportunity is yeah, statistically I mean, I like, the strongest? I think it comes back to the hustle again. Like I, you know, look, I had to get out of school with a job and it wasn't, that was no option. There's you know? no safety net. There was no safety net. You don't it get was, to go out and pursue your no, la la it was, dream. It was four years and done. Like the check wasn't going to keep being written. And, yep. um, and, and look, my parents were going to do what they could, but it wasn't expected. And, um, 
And the faster I got off that payroll, the better for, you know, the better for everybody. Mm -hmm. It just, it wasn't, there was no assumption that, that I had any luxury to take my time. And so I think that there was an an urgency to, I had to figure out how to take care of myself pretty quickly Mm -hmm. um, and an understanding that that was my responsibility and, um, and that, you know, a lot of people have that. And I think that, um, never forgetting that that's, that's the underpinning, right? Like that's, you know, that's what I worry the most about. Where's my, where are my kids going to have that fire? And Mm -hmm. you spend a lifetime trying to give them comfort and then you realize, oh my gosh, maybe the comfort I'm giving them is the worst possible thing I could be giving them. Um, And I think that that, you know, when you're in it, you're not thinking so deliberately about each step. You know, when I was in it, it was just how, is this going to get me to a job? Is this going to get me to a job? Maybe that'll get me to a job. Is this going to get me to a job? So it was, you know, along the way, I certainly thought about putting myself in situations where the odds were better or the exposure to certain people might have been better, but it was all in service of finding a job. Yep. It's an interesting point you raise, though, and it's something I think a lot about. Um, It sounds like you and I grew up with a similar background. When I was graduating from the University of Chicago, I needed a job. I actually chose finance because I had student loans to pay off. And I didn't, I mean, I, I was basically told by my mom, who's a journalist, there is not a chance that you, if you start in journalism, will be able to pay off these student loans. And something I think a lot about is this profession, this field, and diversity in this field. And the fact is, the major hubs are basically the coasts. That's where the majority of news organizations, the mega news organizations, have their offices. Mm -hmm. And in order to be young and to be, whether you're an intern or starting out, you're Mm -hmm. basically taking on a really, really low salary compared to what the lifestyle cost is to be in one of these places. I filled out that loan deferment application several times. See, there you go. (laughs) Those Pell Grants. Yeah. Um, Yes, I don't, you know, I I think, look, it was different times when I was going through it. I think that the student loan situation has exasperated itself. It's probably at a breaking point now. I mean, BU was one of the most expensive universities when I went there, and I can, I I think it probably still is today, um, but I did it with loans and scholarships and a combination permutation of the, the above, um, and again, sort of never took it for granted. And you know, it took me. I paid off my loans. You know, not recently, a while ago, but I was a full grown, married adult after I finished paying off my student loans. And I think you know, unfortunately, that's part of the package that we have in this country um, and probably is something in the next decade that has to be looked at. So you're in this, basically, you were in NBC News in the Washington mm-hmm. Bureau. I was an intern. Well, <laughs> but an intern inside of NBC News, uh, you know, not yep. the easiest thing to do, right? <laughs> I think I actually, thing. by the way, I, I've never said this before, but I am fairly certain. I, I honestly, I don't know for a fact, but I, I recall that at one point I applied for the page program or something like that. Oh, yeah. I didn't get in. No. I didn't. Yeah. Any of the yeah. like. Junior, I, know, I, don't, I think I was afraid to apply. <laughs> well, any of the like junior things that the entry level stuff inside mm-hmm. of news organizations that I applied for. Yeah. 
didn't get those jobs. Didn't yeah. get the. I mean, I don't even think I got an interview. And now that I'm inside, I, I get the impression that a lot of people who do already know somebody inside, and I didn't. So yeah. yeah. Well, I think the Page program is the real deal. It's like applying to an Ivy League school. Um, and in a way, in a funny way, I remember being an intern. We're probably spending too much time on my internship, but <laughs> well, um, it was the most pivotal it's part. The of most your pivotal career, part of my career. <laughs> you know, we got to do more than the pages because the theory was the pages were being paid. You know, and that was the, and the interns were there for credit and for learning. So we we got you know for the finite period that we were there, we we were exposed to I think a little bit more. But in my DC experience, um, you know, I had the great fortune of of meeting Jamie Gangell. Um, and she and I began a relationship that, you know, to this day is a very important mm. mentor, mentee. And I think it's, um, in a funny way, it's probably gone both ways now in terms of how it works. And, um, and we're close friends and, and, and have been able to give each other advice along the way. And, um, I, I take that as, you know, one of the, the very, very fortunate blessings I was given along the way. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, you can't underestimate how important those relationships are as you work your way through. And I didn't always recognize it, but um, I always recognized it enough to pick up the phone and, and reach back and mm-hmm. go, Hey, you know um, I miss talking or I miss the connection and it's never too late to do that. I, I totally agree with that point. So where along the way did it sort of come to you that, the C-suite was part of the ambition. Was that something that started to come up early on in the career? Did you see other people in that role and think that's where I should be? Hear more from Nancy Dubuque after a quick word from our sponsor. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Here's more of my conversation with Nancy Dubuque. So where along the way did it sort of come to you that the C-suite was part of the ambition? Was that something that started to come up early on in the career? Did you see other people in that role and think that's where I should be? No, I mean, I, I never, I, I think it's funny, you know, I, I think a lot of people, at least in the media industry that I've spoken to, most don't, haven't said, oh, I wanted to, I want to be the CEO and, and they go. It's, it's, I don't know if it's about our industry or if it's maybe just the last 30 years of growth of cable where the, a lot of the jobs and a lot of the companies that exist today either, you know, couldn't have been imagined 20 plus or 30 plus years ago. And so, you know, imagining some of the roles that even exist today weren't necessarily in the vernacular. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it was, again, you know, ironically, another woman who was the first that, look, as as I said in the beginning, where I started to eliminate a whole bunch of things for myself, there was probably that pivotal point in my career where, you know, somebody started to say, and Jamie was the beginning of this, but Abby certainly continued it. And then, you know, there was a big gap in between of, of a lot of men that I worked for. But, you know, Abby at A&E Networks was the one that said, you know, you know, you have the tenacity, you have the ability to, to be a general manager. 
And at the point, like that was so not on my radar. What was like, what was your job at the point you were I hearing? I was a that? director of programming, um, and you know she'll tell the story from her point of view all the time that it was the best of times. It was the worst of times when she said that because it meant like, oh, you know, I'm very goal oriented, like task oriented. Great, I can be general manager, and I was like fixated on that. Like that's where I went, and um, but she w- gets all the credit in the world for believing it and i i wouldn't have believed it really no why not no because i just think you know i'm i was in my i produce shows and that's what i do and this is how what i've done to date like it it there's going to be a there's a moment i guess or there was for me in my career where somebody else opened the aperture and so you know, and and I think you have those chapters. It doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen every year. There's sort of I've broken up my life in five year chunks. You know, sort of in terms of my career, and usually careers have chapters to them, and you can look back and sort of start to define those chapters. The unfortunate thing is you don't get to necessarily define them at the beginning of the book. You right. define it at the end of the book. <laughs> um, and part of the reason why you know I made the transition from Agony to Vice was I wanted a third chapter, and I felt like A&E was very much the middle of the book um and you know the beginning of the book was was everything I, you know all of the production experience and the hands-on experience that I had had but it was really Abby that started to say you know you you have this ability to do something bigger and um and that was you know somebody else putting that in my head um and then you start to take you know, you start to push the boundaries. And when someone tells you you can, you take a couple of more steps and you take on a project that maybe you should or shouldn't have. You get a little bolder. You get a little more Care to share a project you took on that you don't think you should Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know that I, um, in hindsight, maybe I shouldn't have. I mean, they all turned out well, obviously. But, you know, the, the one that's been widely reported on, but... You know, it was the 60th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, um, and there was a very seasoned executive at History who had been scouting it, and, and we were going to do a, a big event around it. And, you know, he came back and said, we can do a live event, and it'll cost, you know, X number of millions of dollars, and this is what it'll be. And I sort of shot my mouth off in a meeting and said, you know, I can do it for much less because I had come from, you know, like down and dirty production. And, um, and at the time... You know, for one reason or another, Charlie Mayday, who was the head of programming at the time, and Abby said, fine, do it. And I was like, oh, God, you know. and <laughs> Because you said you could do it for I less. Because I said I could do it for less, yeah. And then, you know, History Channel was only about six or seven years old at the time. So if you could do it for less, you were going to win. You know, <laughs> that was the name of the game. Um, and lo and behold, you know, I went. I spent uh, – I did a trip over the summer scouting, um, you know, had worked with the – the army and the navy and they control fort island and um and we were became the exclusive you know we were going to cover it and we had access to the uss arizona for the anniversary and it was going to be both a japanese and a u.s anniversary um and then 9-11 happened and so the significance of that 60th anniversary became very very powerful but the Army and the Navy honored their commitment to us because we had been there all summer sort of scouting and planning. And so it became a very pivotal moment for history. Um, 
if you've been to the USS Arizona, only one camera can really fit and and preserve the solemnness of the memorial. Um, and so in the national news that night, everybody was talking about the History Channel. And that was a big moment for us. We were a young network, and um, and I had to navigate, you know, a lot of angry news desks, like, you're not the pool camera. And, and we weren't charging anybody. By the but way, the we pool camera, the just so people understand, so the pool <laughs> camera is... Um, when you yeah. go into an event, basically one network gets a camera oftentimes so that there's not 25 cameras. And then you all something. use the footage. And then everybody gets yeah. access. But, but we but, weren't part of the pool, but we were on the Arizona. So, but we gave everybody the footage, obviously, but all we wanted was credit. Right. And so, it became, and credit is that little bug in the corner that of your little screen. annoying bug that you hate, but <laughs> yes, but we love. Um, and it, you know, it was just a, it was a risky thing to raise my hand. It was a, um, I didn't really know what I was doing all the time. I think, you know, several people, there were a lot of tears on that production. Um, Were they yours? Some of them were mine. Some of them were (laughs) others. There was um, a lot of working around the clock, but you know, those, those are the things that sort of bond, you know, teams together. Um, And it became a sort of a unifying rallying cry in, in some ways for um, a s- small group of creative executives that I ended up then sort of rising through the ranks with at that company. I mean, you did a lot of game-changing things at a and You started as CEO there is 2013 is mm-hmm. when you started as yep. CEO. Yep. Um, so you were there for five years in that role. Mm-hmm. Yep. And is there anything that you're the most proud of beyond that, obviously? Yeah, with that was a nice pivotal moment. I mean, I think, look, you know, if you just ha- having the ability to leave a mark and, and touch shows that people are rabid fans of. I Duck mean, Dynasty. I think, you know, well, I would say actually Pawn Stars. Pawn Stars, yeah. Is, you know, I mean, I think that will live much deeper and longer. American Pickers, um, you know, you know, shows like that have a even intervention that has, you know, mm-hmm. literally saved lives. Like those, those things are much more important to me. Um, you know, Hatfields and McCoys was an incredibly proud moment um, from a quality and an awards recognition standpoint. But it, you know, knowing that you've impacted popular culture is a fun thing. Um, if you, you know, if you're ever fortunate enough to be in that role where you can do that. So the decision to leave. Yes. Walk us through your thinking at the time to leave Annie to come here to run Vice. You know, it was, it, it's not as easy as that. It wasn't a methodical, okay, you know, step one, step two, where, where's all of my thinking? I think there was a, um, a lot going on, you know, both in the industry. There still is a lot going on in the industry, a lot of transformation happening. Um, and the, you know, the, the, the face of these companies is changing rapidly with consolidation um, and trying to address, you know, some of the distribution challenges, the advertising challenges, both on traditional, excuse me, traditional linear television as well as digital. Um, I had, you know, on a more personal and sort of, you know, humorous note, was going to be hitting my 20th anniversary at A&E and also a you know a big birthday big milestone birthday and i didn't want to hit both of them in the same year and i couldn't control mm. the birthday but i could control the anniversary and you know i don't think it was as as 
as concrete as that, but it does create a moment of reflection and and sort of thinking about, as I said earlier, that the, the chapters of the book, you know, and, and to be a CEO of a company is a is a complex commitment, um, and you carry the the weight of the company and the employees on your shoulder. And I, I take that incredibly seriously. At the end of the day, that's my main responsibility. And not only are these employees my responsibility, but in some ways their families are. Mm-hmm. And so you know you and you don't sort of come and go from these roles easily. <laughs> and I was at a point in which um, there was an inflection point where I could make a decision about whether or not I wanted to stay for several more years or whether I wanted to try something new. And, you know, staying for several more years just felt like something that wasn't going to lead me to chapter three. And it was it was time to try something new. And I... I could look myself in the mirror and say that I had given A&E the best of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was time to give somebody else the best of me. So why Vice? You know, I think that there was, um, I was on the board. Um, A&E had made an investment. A&E had made an investment in Vice several years earlier. And we have a joint venture between the two companies um, for a channel called Viceland. So there's there's some commonality between the two companies. Um, and so I was very familiar with, with Shane Smith, who's the founder of Vice and some of the senior leadership here. Um, it's a company that is disruptive by nature in the content that it's done. It has, you know, endeavored to sort of reinvent how things are done, whether it's the news, the nightly news broadcast, whether it's content on digital, whether it's, um, films, documentaries, they've, you know, they always are pushing the boundaries of, of the creativity. And I think that that's a brand that I've always associated myself with in terms of a personal brand that I've, you know, sort of came into history and really challenged, you know, the, the notion of the black and white documentary to tell stories. And, and, and so that streak of rebellion had, has always been in me. And that I think that that streak of rebellion is clearly here. And it, it felt very natural at a time when, um, you know, the industry was going through a very difficult period and will continue to go through, I think, a very difficult period dealing with a lot of the challenges around, you know, culture, workplace culture. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, a very senior and continue to be a senior woman in the media business, really asking myself, you know, not being in LA, not necessarily being at the epicenter of where a lot of these um, groups are are taking place, how could I participate? Whether not, And I'm alluding to like a time's up or um, how, how could I participate in a way that had an impact? And, you know, going back to the reference before where I'm a very sort of goal and task oriented person that, you know, I need my to-do list. And if you give me my to-do list, I'm really good at sort of working through it. Um, it felt like there was something to do here. And, and- it felt like there was something... I could come and the way that I could contribute to what was happening and what is continuing to happening, not just in our industry, but the whole country was I could come help a a relatively young organization get through this. Mm -hmm. To your point, all roles 
have trade-offs. Nothing is ever going to be, or at least in my experience, no opportunity has ever been super clear-cut. This is exactly what you should go for. It has The pay is what you want. The lifestyle is what you want. The people are what you want. It's never like that. And, And you talked about time's up. Did you... Was there any trepidation or pause around the the culture of vice and what has been depicted in the media um, prior to your arrival as being a place that was not friendly towards women, the, the stories about sexual harassment and things like that inside of vice? Was that a, a, a place for pause or are you saying you saw it more as an opportunity for you to come in and say, actually, this isn't how we run a company and there's a better way to do it and I know how to do it? Yeah, I think absolutely. I had no trepidation about it whatsoever. I I actually thought they had already taken huge steps, you know, in making some declarative statements about what they were going to do to address the issues that they were having. And mind you, every company was having issues. And now a year later or 18 months later, we find out that companies were having much bigger issues than, than Vice was having. And so I'm also a person that's pretty straight shooter and matter of fact and like to know what I'm dealing with. And I know as a woman, and you and I have you know, talked about this over, mm-hmm. over some of those very times up oriented you know, you know, dinners with other women, I'd rather walk into an environment and have there be complete transparency around what I'm walking into and how to put up my defenses or what I need to do to get through it versus walking into an environment where everybody pretends everything is well behaved and in its right lane when we all know that nothing is in its right lane and nothing is well behaved. And that is much more difficult to navigate than, you know, we're just a oops young company you know not not doing doing some things that weren't right but also wasn't hiding anything <laughs> it was just generally this was the brand you know it's it's it was a it, it and it it already had evolved so far over so many years much of what the reporting was about was had been years earlier and years previous so I think it was a chance to come in and say, hey, we have to, you know, we're going to be one of these giant media companies someday. We're already big. We're going to get bigger. How do we make sure this is a safe place and a creative place and that we can we can build, you know, the avenues of trust and community inside the four walls of vice so that this never happens again here, but we can still be vice. The, um, and I don't have all the answers to that yet. We're still working through it. You've talked about transparency and, and being a straight shooter. And, mm-hmm. I, and I, I, I sort of come from the same thinking of I would much rather be a straight shooter and deal with straight shooters. Mm-hmm. I, it's so exhausting to do the dance around of like, what are you actually thinking? Mm-hmm. Has it ever or have you ever felt that being forward with your intentions or with the strategy or whatever it is has actually been detrimental that that sort of playing the games that some people do play yeah is all beneficial. the time all the time i mean i think that there's there's a certain polish and patina and um you know that a lot of people like to to happen that 
I just don't have the time for. <laughs> and, you know, stylistically, that that is, you know, that's something I struggle with all the time. You know, I, I remember being told, you know, and this is a famous question of yours, and you usually ask it at the end, but, <laughs> um, you know, pretty early on in A&E, and I was a development executive that was, I had quite a bit of track record now behind me, and then a couple of things were starting to really take off. And, you know, very high powered agents have said, look, you know, one piece of advice is that you, you can't say no in the room. And I was like, I don't understand that. Like, what do you mean I can't say no in the room? Well, everything has to always be like a yes and make everybody feel great. And then then we can tell them no later. And I was like, that just seems like such a colossal waste of time to me. Because if I say no in the room, then maybe there's another idea like that. Like, I just never got that. And there's a certain benefit to being naive sometimes that and I think we don't do that enough in business today because these businesses have gotten so big that we've stopped taking risks on young people who maybe don't always know what they're doing. And so I think one of the reasons why I'm thrilled about being here is to find some of that young, hungry talent and start taking those risks where you need to do things differently because doing things exactly the way they've always been done certainly isn't going to get us to where we need to go. Um, but you know, the, I wouldn't, you know, I think that, that whenever you're dealing with a, a room or a group of people or leadership across companies where the dynamic is the same, the gender is the same, the race is the same, that you're going to get a lot of same behavior. And so even just you know, being a woman and coming in and acting slightly differently than all of the guys, that's a different behavior. And so whether or not I've, you know, been perceived as defensive, or I've been perceived as, you know, sharp elbows, it's, it's just a different, I'm different, I'm not a man. And I, I'm not one of them. I have to do it my way because I don't know how else to do it. You mentioned earlier it's a it's a challenge. This this moment in time is a challenge. The entire industry media is going through, um, you know, in a, in a, to put it nicely, it's going through a metamorphosis. Um, mm-hmm. To put it accurately, it's shrinking in many ways, mm-hmm. growing in in a digital sense, but the ad revenue isn't there in the way that it used to be. Um, and, and vice itself has gone through since you've been here now, um, some challenges as well. And the wall street journal just wrote a report about the fact that the company is going to be downsizing, laying Mm -hmm. off 10 to 15% of the workforce. Mm -hmm. How do you think through choices like that in your role? Painfully. I mean, I think you, um, you know, you, you take your time because I take seriously every single decision that I make. And so maybe this is going slower than people would like, but, um, and, and that goes, you know, from all ends of the spectrum, but I want to get it right. And, and I also know that you never get everything a hundred percent right. So even, even if, um, I'm certain about every decision I make when I've, when I finally make the decisions, you know, I'm sure, I always shoot for, I hope I'm 80% right, 
you know, you can't know everything. CEOs are generalists in nature. Um, and there are going to be some things where I'm reliant on my leadership team to make the call. And, and some of them are going to be right or wrong. But as long as we fail fast and move quickly, um, you know, then we'll correct those mistakes. But I think, you know, you can't do the opposite. And that's just keep on the path that you're going, because then that's detrimental for everybody. Right. The, the so, thing can go out of business. The thing can go out of business. And I don't think that we're, we're nowhere near in that situation. And I think we're in a different, um, a different league and a different category than many of, um, many of the headlines that you're seeing lately with some of the digital publishing companies, because we're, we're a very, we're a diversified company. So we're, you're not basing everything on Facebook. No, no, no. It's actually, Facebook is a, isn't, not a meaningful revenue contributor to our business at all. It's a it's a traffic contributor, but you know we also have a global studios business. We have an agency business. We have a television business. We're fifty percent international, so we we have a lot more to lean on. Fortunately, you know, knock on wood, than than most companies right now. Which, as we have momentum heading into nineteen, you know, could create some interesting opportunities for us. And and I think if we show strength, and we show conviction, and and we show um, growth, which I know we will, then, you know, 19 will be an interesting year for us. Um, but I, I think you don't ever take any of these decisions lightly. And whether you're a smaller company like Vice or one of these bigger conglomerates that's about to merge, <laughs> you know, these are shape-shifting times in media. Um, and some of the questions that have to be asked are, you know, what are these platforms doing, you know, to media and are they good or are they bad and mm. consumers need to be more educated about you know what they're handing over what do you think about that i mean you you bring up a really interesting point in this moment in time by mm -hmm. platforms what are they doing what is sort of the consumer getting i think about this a lot in terms of the trending topics and what mm -hmm. rises more polarizing things mm -hmm. are the things that tend to rise um, yeah. and and reporting often follows that I often worry about okay so you know you're giving me things I like but that means you're all giving me the same thing yeah <laughs> so yep. the echo chamber is a very very dangerous the bubbles the bubble is very dangerous and you know how do you create any genuine curiosity or learning about knowledge um, there's a difference between information and knowledge, and we get an awful lot of information thrown at us every day. But I think the next couple of years really needs to be a discussion around quality, not quantity. And that's not that's not happening on these platforms. And I think, look, they, the in, the original intent was to bring communities together, right? Um, I think that it's kind of ironic that what they seem to be doing is the exact opposite, and that's tearing communities apart. Mm -hmm. Or or that they've created really, really strong communities, but they're so defined and so there's so many litmus tests within each community that mm -hmm. in order to be a member or a participant, you have to be pure in every possible way, meaning you have to agree and sign on to the same tribal features of everybody else in that group. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how the platform is being used, but absolutely. I, I you know, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think, um, look, it'll be an interesting couple of years to see you know, and, and consumers use these platforms differently. They use them differently globally. They use them differently generationally. Um, you know, and, and I, but quality content costs money. And, um, and I think you can't, 
we can't and we're fortunate enough to not have a business that's dependent on Facebook. Um, you know, we think they're a great brand and we think that they're what they've built is pretty incredible and that they're obviously a lot of incredibly smart men and women there, but um, you can't sort of just take the IP and the hard work of um, the brands of and journalists of publishing companies and not, you know, share and be treated fairly and compensate them for and it because it costs it. money to create that. And if there's no compensation well, you're using for these it, brands to create communities, then you gate the community and make those brands pay for the com- access to the community. And the, I mean, it's a complicated, it's a complicated issue, you know, from a consumer standpoint, the, the, you know, privacy is complicated. Um, the echo chamber that you're seeing and hearing. And I know I'm always frustrated that why don't I see my friends posts? Just give me all my friends posts, you know, don't limit me. And, and they're controlling what you see and don't see every day. And um, that's their prerogative. It's their platform. So I understand when they say you can be on it or you don't have, you can or can't be on it. That's mm-hmm. your choice. That's they're right. It is, it is their choice. It's their business. Um, but we have to make choices for our business too. And, um, and I think that that, you know, we're going to all watch very carefully over the next couple of years, all of these platforms, I think, you know, they're being asked to go to Washington for a reason. Five years from now, what is Vice? Where do you want to see this company? I think we're a global content powerhouse. We're a youth media company that serves young audiences, you know, on every platform, and and some for monetary reasons and some for not some for you know marketing and scale and reach reasons um but we are producing you know every form of content in every medium and distributing that content both through you know paid channels um social channels and um probably channels that yet to be invented and for you what's been the toughest lesson along the way the toughest lesson. That's a good question. Um, patience, probably. Mm. You know, I think patience is a is a, a hard fought lesson, um, but one that you know when you have a, you, you just sort of have to keep at it because, and remind yourself that, you know, when you're having that moment of, of frustration or doubt that you know, I try and look back now, and gain some perspective on how far everyone and everything has come. Mm -hmm. Well, you do realize, um, or at least I've had this happen in my own career. Early on, I felt very impatient many times over. And now I still feel impatient Mm -hmm. plenty of the time. But when you look back and you see yourself being impatient, you sort of recognize some of the things, the experiences that you probably needed to collect along the way Mm -hmm. in order to be in the next whatever thing it was. Yeah. And I try and, you know, I'm still collecting those experiences. Always. I'm still collecting that learning. So yeah. when you have that moment of impatience or frustration, it's, I try and take a beat. Was there a turning point for you where it became more clear? I think that's happening every day. I think that that's, I'm in one of those moments right now, very, very much so. That when you're, you know, really in the deep end of the pool and the, the business that you're in is changing and evolving and the industry is changing and evolving. And I think, you know, just the news cycle, we all feel ugh, but, you know, <laughs> so, that there's a lot of forces that 
feel like every day they push against you um, and somehow you have to keep pushing back against it. And if you're going to do that, you have to find something in yourself that regenerates. And, um, and I, don't, I don't feel like you, and I've, I've had this conversation actually just with a colleague last night, you, you know, there are just periods of time in which you go through that. And I don't know whether it's because I changed jobs recently, whether it's because of age, whether it's, but it's just because, you know, it's just one of those times that of self-discovery. And I, I think that's actually a good thing. And that's, you know, self-awareness is probably one of the most important attributes leaders of tomorrow need to have. And you mentioned earlier the worst advice. So this was a, an agent or a manager? It was an this? agent. So an agent told you, don't say don't no, say in, the no in the meeting right away. <laughs> Just, you know, string them out, say yes, <laughs> make them think we're all friends, and then find someone else to deliver I've the no later. I've always felt like no is the second best answer to yes. <laughs> I like that. What, what did you say to the agent when the agent said this to you? I probably said fine and then promptly said no in my next meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so you learned. You learned how to make it work. Exactly. Exactly. Nancy, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. It's the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And here's this week's pick. Hi, guys. I'm Kelly Peeler, the founder and CEO of NextGenVest. We call ourselves the money mentor for every student because we help Gen Z navigate the entire student loan process all over text message. We do this using a combination of human advisors and artificial intelligence to provide one-on-one customized help for thousands of students across the country. I started the company because I really believe that the next financial crisis is rooted in the student loan market. After spending time building companies and nonprofits helping students, and spending a time at J.P. Morgan on Wall Street, I'm a big believer that the biggest financial barrier to the next generation of financial services consumers is their student loan debt. So at NextGenVest, we try to reduce that debt by helping students um, navigate the financial aid process, find scholarships, and make the best financial decisions early on in their financial lives so that they can ultimately do what they want to do with the rest of their time. Remember, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more about this week's No Limits Entrepreneur. Congratulations, Kelly. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week or you have some career questions, send them to me here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I also want to take a moment to thank those of you who have been leaving us reviews. If you haven't already left one, Now's a great time, especially when we give shout outs to people who leave really nice ones like Olivia0705, who writes, I love listening to this podcast each week. I feel so inspired listening to the different guests talk about the obstacles they faced to get where they are today. And I think it's so interesting to hear how many people's career paths changed along the way. Rebecca is amazing at leading the conversation and making it flow so smoothly. Two thumbs up for No Limits. Well, Olivia, two thumbs up for you. That is a really thoughtful and kind review. And I'm really glad that what we're doing is resonating with you. That is why we do what we do. And it's great to hear in the new year. Hope yours is off to a good start. Okay, finally, a shout out to our wonderful team here that helps make this happen every week. 
my producer Taylor Dunn, editor Brittany Martinez, research assistant Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Get it done in 2019. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.